Welcome to the Leading Innovation Podcast. Let's learn how brilliant minds push the boundaries of innovation. Brought to you by V from 5 to 1. What is up, everybody? Welcome again to another episode for the Leading Innovation Podcast. We have Omer. Um, he has an incredible background. Um, I think I would love for everyone to learn about how someone has gone from working in the military to then becoming a director of one of the biggest banks in Australia um, to then now, uh, you've also been part of a movie, which is, um, this is happening. And, um, and now building an incredible business called Vivo, which is essentially an intelligent hiring platform uh, for, fi- uh, for hiring, finding hidden talents through real world tests rather than you know, looking at things like background credentials and stuff, Vovo is more so a direct way of going ahead and uh, getting people to get good jobs that they're worth getting. Um, but more about that soon. How are you going today, Omer? Hey, Vabab. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, Omer, we'll jump straight into it. Um, first thing, I would love to know, I think a lot of people generally tend to struggle with understanding how they can change career paths because they feel like they've gone too niche in what they're doing. So you've got such a diverse background and you've been successful in whatever you've done so far. So what made you do that initial, like the, the latest jump, which was obviously working at NAB at, um, I think you were, if I'm, if I had your background correctly, you, you were at as the head of balance sheet solutions and you're a director at national resourcing. And now you've gone on to create um, a, an intelligent hiring platform. How did that happen? Yeah, I know it feels like, they're very different things. And in some respects, um, in some respects they are, but in a lot of other respects, I feel like everything I've done before founding uh, Vervo was kind of an apprenticeship and helped me uh, get to this point. Um, and when I think about what it takes to change careers uh, or to, to start a business or really to do anything different, there are three components, uh, skills, network, and courage. And um, really, courage is probably what holds most people back, which is really just mm. the decision to, to go for it, um, whether that's believing that you can do it or whether it's the financial risks that, uh, that are uh, associated with that. Awesome. That's, uh, I guess so it's a lot more of a mental switch, right, than, than like a... Um, obviously there's a technical switch attached to it as well. So that's fantastic. Now um, with Vovo, it's a marketplace and with any marketplace, you know, the, the question always starts, which is chicken and egg, chicken, and egg, chicken, and egg. So if you could share a little more about why you started Vovo and what exactly Vovo does, um, because I'm very curious to, I'm very interested about a hiring in general and B how someone generally tackles um, two-sided marketplaces because everyone has their own unique story when they build a marketplace. Yeah. And, and I think, so marketplaces are difficult and there's no right answer. It depends if it's a, a physical um, marketplace like, like Uber, for example, or whether it's digital goods and um, some folks uh, tackle supply first and some demand. I, I can only speak about uh, what we've done and we're absolutely still learning um, but but we um, what we validated first was demand. So um, demand being companies needing to hire and needing to test skills and needing the way to figure out the right way to do that. So the problem is if I put myself in the if I use the voice of the user, the problem is I don't know how to test for this role or this skill, and then that creates demand for a type of test. 
Uh, and so that's what we validated first. Um, and, and then on the supply side, it's how do you get that content, that, uh, the content being a test, a skill test. Uh, and we, there, there are three ways that we do that and we've had um, varying degrees of success over time. Um, the first is, so we source content from third party experts. So um, people like you and me, uh, people that have skills in a certain industry or recruiters or psychologists. Uh, the second is we have a free tier. And so we have user generated content. So one of the terms of the free tier is that we own the content and we can repurpose it. And the third is we created ourselves. We have an in-house IO psychology team. And, right. And there's no right answer. There's no, or there's no one answer, I should say. For different scenarios, we apply um, one or more of those methods. And, it, and even as recently as two hours ago, we had someone approach us wanting to test for something very, very um, obscure or niche, uh, certain uh, interpersonal traits. And we're probably going to design something um, for them. Whereas if you want to sort of hire someone in sales, we've probably got a thousand different questions that you can use that are already in our library. But it, the point is that that's something that's built over time. It's not right. something that it, it doesn't necessarily all happen pre-launch. Understand. And how does someone define that? Because obviously uh, I build products for a living and I always see individuals go through this constant battle of when is it ready? And when is, you know, the whole mindset of MVP versus product for impact. So wh when do I know that my app, especially in a marketplace, which is content generated, like in your case, right, as you said, because the more questions you get, the library becomes bigger and the product is more full. How do you, uh, verify with yourself that this is the time for me to quote unquote launch or are you always just like pushing 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 yeah it, it's a great question i think it depends on the the hypothesis so what are you trying to prove so are you trying to mm. uh, prove that you can get one customer um is it a free product are you trying to get thousands of people to use it for free so that sort of really is a factor of um the go-to-market and then and the second thing which is related is who's your customer so if you're selling to enterprise it's hard to go with an mvp maybe you can do it with sort of a closed pilot with a very forgiving understanding enterprise customer but most enterprise customers will have um, to get through their procurement you know you'll need enterprise grade security and uh, privacy and and data sovereignty and all these kind of things so depending on who your user is that'll determine uh, how advanced the product needs to be. But almost always there's a way to do a stripped back version to prove a hypothesis, even if it's in a closed beta. Mm. And once you prove that, and, and, and depending on your financial goals, so for example, um, if you're trying to raise a pre-seed round, maybe it's enough just to get X number of beta users or one customer and then say, okay, somebody wants this, now I'm going to spend money to build it properly. Right, it really depends. And we've done a number of launches. We launched in private beta, public beta, and then publicly launched. And at, if, at every one of those launches, we set very different expectations about who we're targeting and uh, how advanced the product is at that stage. Right. Fair enough. And keeping that step, I guess that's fair, right? Because you set your micro goals for your macro achievements and that way you know what you want to attain at each stage. That's fair. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. 
Now, with respect to the pre-seed, so when you started Vivo, obviously you put in some amount of your own money, I'm assuming, um, to build like the initial version of the product and stuff, correct? That's absolutely correct. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, I mean, you know, some people just go ahead and raise funds from the very get-go, right? Um, So when you build a product out, for for those people who are, I guess, um, do you come from a technical background? No, I don't. My co-founder does. So David and I, did this together and he's technical um, and, and we, we used our own money and most of that uh, initial money was to um, fund development. Sure. And, and we got it to a point where we felt we had enough uh, of a product and enough validation to allow us to raise capital um, and, and quit our jobs and sort of do this properly. Fair enough. And, and how long did it take you to build the first version? I'm always curious to know how, you know, how long people take to build their first version. Yeah, it took us months. And I think, um, part of that was due to obviously building, but part of it was due to the fact that we didn't have a very good sense in hindsight Mm. of what to build or who we're building it for. We had, we had a lot of clarity about the vision and that's never changed. Right. But what we didn't get right in the beginning was the market positioning of the product. And then we had to do multiple versions of that. And coming back to your MVP question, we had to get to a point where we called it MLP minimum lovable product. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Uh, You know, before we could really take it to market and get to a point where we were confident that it would be adopted. Fair enough. That makes sense. And when you built that first version and you reached out to your investors and, and you know, that entire round, how does that work? I mean, so I've, I've traditionally built bootstrap businesses. So I always find that, you know, the, the journey of investment very um, exciting from the outside, right? But I'm, uh, you always hear different stories of, you know, how hard it is to get that going as well. And how do you, how did you balance that cycle of actually, you know, continuously building the product obviously, because you're trying to solve a problem and also balance the time of, you know, um, getting investors on board and so on and so forth. Yeah. So the, the key decision point, which I don't think it's, it's, is discussed enough is, uh, should you raise external capital, right? And particularly who should you raise capital from? Because once you go down a path of venture, there's no turning back, mm. not just because you've, I've taken dilution and given up part of the business and are accountable, but also because of the interest. So um, venture funds want to return a certain return and they basically want your investment, the investment in your company to return the whole fund. That's how they think. So they, yeah. they don't want to make 20%. They want to make the 20,000%, right? Yeah. They, the, the way they look at things is, will this be the next Airbnb? Yeah. And, and so that sets a range of expectations around, um, exits and liquidity events around growth rates around taking further capital and around how you're going to manage the business now we formed a view that to build the product that that we have built which is a very big product with machine learning and natural language processing and data science team and an enterprise sales team we need capital it's not something that you can bootstrap sure Uh, and, and once we formed that view we realized mm. that, that that's the path for us rather than the sort of bootstrap or low bootstrap. growth path. Um, and to win in our industry, we need capital. Um, and everyone around us has raised a lot of capital. And that's agree, just the yeah. nature. And yeah. some businesses are like that, like hardware businesses or logistics businesses. Yeah. Um, 
whereas there are other businesses that are very capital light um, and, and that's just how it is. And you have to understand that really early on. And once we realized that it was obvious for us, which path to go down. Fair enough. And I think that's, you've raised a very good point is some, sometimes you need to get in that mental mode of understanding that whether you like it or not, you, you, you have a lot of competition and your competition is heavily geared and you just can't come to the top without, you know, doing a traditional bootstrap. Like you need to go ahead and, oh, it's going to take you years and years, years of time. Right. It's, it's one of those things. Um, and there are always exceptions. You look at like MailChimp. Yes. You know, there are these companies that, that, that have done it. Maybe they were first to market or they yes. had some sort of structural advantage, but yes. it, typically it's, typically it's rare. Mm. Um, I mean, you look at Buffer and Zapier. There are a few businesses that have raised either no or very little capital. Yes. Um, yes. And, but, but most of the time, um, you know, in SaaS, you see a, a fairly traditional venture capital pathway. Correct. 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 That, that, that makes sense. I think so. Cause SaaS in general, just because of the way the structure works of, you know, revenue generation and so on and so forth, it is microscopic transactions versus, you know, big chunks of volume. So, um, that makes absolute yeah. sense. The other thing to add to that is, um, it, you know, it depends on the industry. So our industry is, you know, we're in an emerging category. Most people, um, hadn't heard of skill testing, Sure. Years ago, and certainly not online skill testing. Most yeah. recruitment is still very much traditional resumes and interviews. And so, if you're trying to build a category, if the industry is evolving very quickly, then then that means that has implications for your go-to-market um, and capital as well. And so, they, you know, they, they are some of the factors that you need to take into account in raising capital. Hmm. And hmm, right. Okay. That that's that's very. I see what you're trying to get to at with this. And in that entire process where you, you've come up with the ideology, obviously that when you're raising capital, this is a cycle to go with. What are the general things that you looked for when you started the run? Did you just reach out to, you know, high net worth investors that were in your network? Did you get introductions? How did that entire process work for you? Yeah. In the very beginning, obviously now we have sort of relationships with the VC community yeah. globally, but in the beginning we just spoke to basically anyone we could. Yeah, and, fair enough. and we asked their opinion and we just said, listen, um, this is what we, this is our vision. This is what we've done so far. Um, you know, we, we, we think uh, that it makes sense for us to raise some money and this is what we plan to do with it. You know, what do you think? And who do you think we should talk to? Mm. And every meeting we had, we started with a very small circle and every meeting we had, we ended the meeting by saying, who else should we talk to? And then we invariably get like one or two introductions. Fair, fair, uh, fair, fair. And eventually you work your way, you know, you start from five coffees and you work your way to about 40 coffees. <laughs> and, 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 you know, 10 or 15 of them offered us money. And that's yeah, basically how, how it came together in the beginning. Fair um, enough. And we had, we had no idea, like we didn't know how to do a deck. We didn't know yeah. what to look for. But I think when you sort of at that pre-seed, seed kind of friends and family kind of round, it's, it's really only the vision and the team. There's nothing else. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's another thing I wanted to ask, right? Is like when um, do, because a common question I ask is, hey, should I put my traction? And I always find that confusing. I'm like you're a small, you just started. Like how can traction be a measurement? Unless you're like a, one of those viral successful startups. Um, do you, track, is, is traction a thing that you should consider? Look, if you're, 
if you're raising pre-seed money, typically you're raising money to build a product. And if people, I mean, I remember someone asked us like MRR and churn and, and we were just like, okay, you're the wrong person. because yeah. we, we haven't even built a product at yeah. this point. We've got an idea and a few lines of code. Mm. And so, you know, and that's why it's called pre-seed. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. and, and I think, so there are, the right investors for each stage Agreed. and and the and at that early stage what you want is a compelling vision and confidence that you can execute that vision Fair and enough. if you've got some form of a product great if you've got someone who's agreed to try the product amazing but you know traction anyone who expects to see significant traction when you're raising pre-seed i i think there's a mismatch there now yeah. once you're in the market and you've launched and you've got some revenue, you've got some referenceable customers, that's a different, then it all becomes about traction, but that's of a course, very different a stage game. to, right. Then it's a, that's a different stage to, I want to build this product. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And with respect to your, your interaction with, you know, as you said, you, right before our call, you had, um, American investors and Australian investors, you know, the most common thing you hear in the grapevine is like how diff, how different the two cultures of investment are. It's very documented on like how different people, how, uh, how differently the two uh, ecosystems think. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, massively different. Um, although it's hard to generalize in such a broad way because sure. there are huge differences even between the VCs across the U S mm-hmm. but, but the key difference is cultural and it's around risk tolerance. So um, in America, typically what the VCs want is, are you going to be Uber and Fair enough. what, the, and they're happy to take huge risk. The valuations are higher um, and they, and, and they want you to spend a lot of money and they would prefer that you blow up and get zero in return. In, if there's a chance you'll be, a $10 billion company. Whereas right. in Australia, there's probably less tolerance for that and they prefer to get something back. And, and so there'll be a bit more metrics driven and a bit more focused on burn rate and, and a bit more conservative. Um, and, and that's because if you look at the culture that we have here and how many companies have been, startups have um, been created in Australia that, that are 10 plus billion at yeah, yeah, yeah. And Canva. you know, <laughs> Canva's on the way, you know, Canva's obviously well past a billion now. Oh, you you know, 10 they're, plus, they're, 10 plus. Yeah. So maybe just Atlassian. 10 pl- right. Atlassian. Mm. And, and then if you look at a billion plus there's there's a handful. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's less kind of familiarity and, and um, comfort with that level of, of risk. And, and now you look at WeWork and some of these stories and it freaks people out. Um, and right. I think in the US, there's just more acceptance of sort of go big or go home. And, and that seems to be the, the, the key difference between the two cultures. Right, right. And uh, it's, it's funny you say that because I remember, um, uh, I'm pretty sure you might have heard of these people, um, Brex. Yeah, the credit card. Yeah, the credit card, uh, the credit card guys. Credit card right? guys. Yep, and yep. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's so interesting because when they, they made a statement and it was a very interesting statement where I think their, their founders are like, look, um, we don't know what is going to happen to this company in three to five years time, but we're going to grow it at such a pace where it either grows, goes up like a rocket ship or comes down like a meteor, right? And um, that's such an interesting mindset. And I guess the very American-esque uh, aggressive mindset versus a more so different approach which is i want to build a sustainable business and i found out in, in the sense that do you think that uh, the 
the goals of a business change when you start raising around because a lot of people that I speak to that are in the VC space or have raised, um, depending again on each person, the mindset changes from, okay, profit comes as a second and third virtue. The first thing is growth and growth and growth and like, you know, two, three other metrics. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think at the end of the day, the goal has to be profit. The question is, how do you get there and when, how long does it take? Sure. Right. And the reason that you see companies like, like Uber uh, in particular um, focusing on growth at all costs is not because they don't want profit, but it's because they want to dominate a category and crush the competition. Right. And, and so they believe that if they slow down and, and reduce costs and increase margins, then eventually they'll lose because someone else will come in. And instead, what they want to do is get to a point where they reach escape velocity. It's inevitable that they're the category leader and no one can ever, ever catch up to them. And then they can do whatever they want. They can then decide to be profitable. They can sell the company. They can do a lot of things. Um, and that, that's the thinking. It's not that they don't value profit. It's that they see the path to getting there, mm. uh, a different path, as opposed to let's be profitable very early and sort of go slow. And, and like you said, with Brex, it is a sort of, um, sort of rocket ship, you know, uh, reach the moon or, cra or a crash landing. It is that that's what will happen. Fair enough. So I guess it's a completely, it's, it's a different mindset. Obviously, like you said, when people say, oh, I just don't care about profit. Like, no, that's not the case. That's not what, that, I guess that's what the news fills people's mindsets with, right? Is when I catch up with, for example, my sister's friends and stuff, and they come from a very corporate environment. They're like, yeah, you know, startups are just about raising funds and getting it through. But in the end, everyone does need to make money at, at the end of the of day. Of course. <laughs> and you look at Salesforce. Salesforce is a great example. Oh, yeah. So. Beautiful. Yeah they delayed profit for years and years mm. and you know now they're a hundred billion dollar the biggest SaaS company in the world and no one yep. can get anywhere near them nope and now they can do whatever they want they can make any capital decision that they want because there's no basically like even though there are probably a thousand crms there's only one salesforce salesforce no yeah Agreed. That's true. They've got such a big branding cycle set up to it. Um, and it, whilst you're building this marketplace of yours, right? Because um, again, jumping back in, I find marketplace is so interesting because in my opinion, you're basically running two startups, right? Because you're doing one for the supply side and one for the demand side. When do you know or how do you define who you're building the product for? Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, you know, people talk about, uh, they use Uber as an example where you, know, you actually need to build a product for not the person giving you the money. I.e. in Uber's case, you know, you need to build a product that is sustainable for the drivers, even though it's the, it's the, um, the riders that are giving Uber the cash, but without the drivers, the product doesn't exist. So how do you define who's the source of truth that you need to be more capitalized towards? If my question makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it does. So yeah. we actually have three users. We have companies hiring people. Then we have the candidates who apply for jobs who they're testing. And then we have the people who are contributing the assessment content. Okay. Sure. Right. Right. So that complicates things even further, but we're very <laughs> clear on who we build for. And the way that we get that clarity is we've defined what's called our core transaction. And that's a, a terminology that comes from um, platform thinking and our core transaction. So if you think about Instagram, the core transaction on Instagram is sharing a photo. Okay. Um, that's what Instagram's about. 
our core transaction is a candidate completing a test. Right. And once right. we understood okay. that, everything revolves around that. So right. while yeah. our paying customer is a company, we build for the candidate. Why? Because if we can't get candidates to want to do the test, yep. we can't deliver any value back to the company. Yep. It doesn't yep. matter how like fancy the UI is or whatever. Mm. If at the end of the day, if a company chooses an awesome test and loves the product for the first five minutes, if their candidates aren't prepared to complete the assessment, doesn't they matter. get no value. They can't make a decision yeah. and they'll think that we're giving a negative experience and they'll never come back. You, so you, once we, mm -hmm. sorry, go ahead. No, no, Karen, Karen, uh, I'll interrupt the thought, but yeah, you're saying. So I was just going to say that once we realized that we realized that we have to build everything around the candidate journey and make it an awesome experience for the candidate who's not paying us any money ever, but who will enable us to deliver value to our paying customer. Right. So we think about the candidate experience, not because we're nice and it's, and it's the right thing to do, although it is, but because that's our core transaction, candidates completing skills right. assessments on our right. platform. So, makes sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense because obviously that's, uh, I, uh, my terminology is a little different, but it's exactly the same principle, which is chasing your North Star. What is that North Star that you're trying to resolve for? And that defines a core transaction in your business where value is transferred from one entity to the other, right? And that's our North Star. So the key yeah. metric we look at, the one, we obviously mm. measure a lot of things, but the one thing we look at every day and every month is number of completions, number of, number completions. of assessments yeah. completed yeah. Yeah. across the whole platform. And when that goes down, not good. When it goes up, good, that, good. as a rule. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of people struggle to get to that realization and it sometimes becomes too late where you're like, Oh wait, it never, it doesn't matter how many jobs are posted or how many, maybe even jobs are being converted. It maybe depends upon the quality of people that actually sustain in the job three months later. Right. Um, and, and that's one last thing I want to ask you is how does your feedback loop work? How do you verify that someone was successfully attained in this job? Right? Because in, in a business like yours, um, where the feedback loop is essentially off in the sense that, Hey, this person was actually a good hire, maybe might come to three months later because you know, they stayed in the job for three months or, um, they stayed for six months. So how do you verify that, that delayed cycle, unless I've got it wrong? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So we divide uh, the analytics into two uh, components. The first is pre-hire. So everything that happens up until a hiring decision is made we, um, and that, and that uh, involves the entire recruiter experience and candidate experience and um, all the pass-through rates, time saved, time spent, time to hire, all those kind of things. Um, and, and so that basically is the first step where companies say we're getting a ton of value because we've saved time. We feel like better people are being are getting through to the interview stage. Then what we do is once they hire people, um, we do three and six month surveys and we understand, uh, you know, if the people that they've hired are performing well and have been retained. And also we then feed back into the product. So we understand, okay, who are the high performers in sales and what assessment did they do and what questions did they do well in so that we know what's working and what assessment to use in the future so that we can then upgrade the content or, or deliver better content next time for that role. So we're constantly learning what's the best way to test for each role in each situation. Right. Okay. Fair enough. So, so you've basically created that iterative cycle and you've shortened that feedback loop, right? 
right? Exactly. And we use it to make the experience better for that client next time and other clients for similar roles. That come through. Right. Fair enough. Um, and you know, you've mentioned that you use data science and artificial intelligence and so on and so forth to, to improvise and, and make your product better. And again, the unfortunate thing with data science is the chicken and egg where you need data to make conclusive decisions. You need both negative and positive data to, to obviously make sure your models don't overfit and stuff. So um, for anyone who's trying to build an AI startup um, that are maybe lacking access to some set of data, how, how do you build those models or do you initially launch with a version that is very um, mechanical turnkey and then eventually gather the right information and then build your product into an AI product? Well, that's exactly what we did. So we launched yeah. in beta. We launched a skill testing product. We called it simple testing. It had no AI, no auto grading. And we launched a, a freemium or free-ish. So it was um, a fixed price, lifetime use of the product. It was $49 US dollars or something like that. And basically, we got thousands of companies to use it. Um, and for $49, there was nothing to think about, but they were paying. So they were using it properly and they cared about it. And they tested candidates at scale across thousands of roles. And the goal was to collect feedback and data. And, and that was, uh, that's what helped us build our initial uh, data set. And then we used that proof and traction to raise capital. And then we built our data science team and our machine learning models hired a sales team and launched publicly. Sure. And that, that's what we did. And so that's how we built the original data set and the original models. And then that's really only the beginning. So then we started iterating. Um, you talked about negative data. So we started discovering uh, all the problems and mm. what, you know, how bias creeps in and started adjusting for all sorts of edge cases. Um, and it's sort of a never ending Process, yeah. of work <laughs> but you have to get to critical mass in the beginning otherwise you, you can't really do much and correct. and that's and that's how we did that correct fair enough and to to, to, to come to the conclusive side of this right i guess what i'm always fascinated by is when founders are building businesses that are doing well what what is the one piece of advice or two whatever you can conclude with to give to people looking to start a business in 2020 um instead of like trying to chase trends and stuff, is there something fundamentally that is different that people need to look out for when they're trying to start a startup now? Are people just a lot more cryptic, cynical? What are the things that would help someone wanting to start a business this year um, progress in a much better path than they would have if otherwise? For me, there are two things that guide me. I think you have to have a burning desire to do this because it, it's too challenging otherwise. And, and so you need to really, really want to do it and be prepared to make massive sacrifices in terms of um, life. Financial, yeah. financially, uh, you know, working hard, um, all those kind of things. And you want to make sure that your immediate circle, uh, you know, family um, and people around you are supportive of doing that. Mm. Uh, and, this, and the second thing is you need to be a learner and you need to be prepared to constantly um, eat humble pie, uh, <laughs> yeah. forget, forget everything that you thought was true and start again, learn new skills. I mean, I've had to completely re-educate myself. And that's why I said at the beginning of this uh, episode, I talked about, uh, you know, skill, Correct. Uh, courage and network. And um, really, um, for me, I had really only the courage to do this. And a lot of the skill I had to build up as we were building this business and still I'm still teaching myself 
uh, and learning so many things. And then sure. the network was something that, that sort of evolved over time. Um, and so, you, you know, you need to be prepared. You, you need to really want it and you need to be prepared to constantly learn um, because it's, you know, our company every three months, it's like a new company. Fair enough. Uh, it's, yeah. it, 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 it's growing quickly. The market changes, the team changes, the product changes. Uh, and you, you can't sit still. So if you want something that's kind of stable, um, best to work at a, at a big company and not, not start it. I understand. Uh, yeah, fair enough. That makes sense. Well, um, I couldn't be more thankful for your time today. Um, for those who want to get in touch with you and um, learn more, is there a place that we can reach out to you directly? Yeah, uh, the place that's probably easiest to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, I'll put the link in there. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and and obviously, um, you, you know, our site vervo.com um, is is pretty easy to find and and talk to us from there as well. Awesome. So for those who want to know, it's v e r v o e dot com. Um, right. Check them out if you want uh, to learn more about this. And I have to say, it's been a very educational show um, <laughs> compared to all the shows that we I've been doing recently. So thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts and everything. Um, have a great day, Omer. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.